0: What's up, guys? Andrew here on this episode of This Crypto Life. We speak with Marcus Anderson, entrepreneur, intellect, world builder, and former NFL player. Enjoy this episode.
1: Hey, man. Happy to be here. It's a long time coming. Um, You know, I just really love and enjoy, you know, the way that you, um, you know, just create space, right? You create the containers and the conditions. So I'm just happy to be here uh, today and have this discussion with you. Sure. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Yeah. So I was doing some research and I was like, where do I want to start? Um, I, I decided to start uh, right before uh, you went to college. I think mm-hmm. that's a that's a good time to start. And, and even some of the things that I researched in the background, if you want to share some anecdotes there as well, is uh, how you were viewing the world. Prior to entering the college experience, so so lead us into that if you don't mind, and I'm, I'm excited to hear your your journey.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that question, and um, you know, uh, growing up, I got, man, it's, it's it's really interesting because a lot of times I really felt like I didn't fit in, right, in a lot of areas. Um, when I was young, I actually um, you know would see in like kind of colors, shapes, sounds, symbols. Um, and it was really difficult for me to uh, really communicate or articulate what I was seeing in those spaces in you know, kind of this 3D world. Um, and I think through that experience, I had to find tools that helped me to uh, translate what I was seeing in those spaces to, um, you know, really creating the life and, and being comfortable um, in my own skin, to be perfectly honest. Um, and so through that, you know, sports really helped me out a lot. Um, and then also using my brain in education, um, I always was kind of in magnet uh, programs, but sports was really a way for me to translate a lot of things that I was seeing in these more ethereal spaces um, and really manifest them through movement, like through my body. Um and I say that to say, um, you know, when I was in high school, I ran track, played football, basketball, um, all the things, right? Um, and I found that I could really envision what I was going to do before I actually did it, and so it was a really good practice to not only envision what I wanted out of the world, but envision what I wanted out of myself, um, and really start to look at how I could manifest those things, and um, you know, through through the practice of playing uh, playing football. Um, and so um, I had mentors in high school. Um, you know, one of my biggest mentors, of, of course, and maybe not. of course, but is my dad. Um, And then also my sister, right? Um, She was a all-American track star. I mean, star in the literal sense where uh, she went on to win a gold medal in track in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. And um, I always looked up to her, not only for her uh, intellectual aspects of what she brought to, you know, the way she approached learning, but also how she approached and her tenaciousness. Um, She was probably the first person and that had that mamba attitude when it came to sports. And so for me like it even just to get any attention around the house I had to perform. Um you know and that's in you know scholarship as well as in 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 sports. And so I really pushed myself Um, to, uh, really be the best and push my boundaries. Um, you know, maybe because of ego, I didn't want to get left behind, but also I was really fascinated about what my potential was. Where could I go? Uh, what could I do? Um, and how far could I go? So that's kind of my mind frame when I was coming out of high school is that I just wanted to be the best. And like going to college was never kind of a, a thought of like, am I going to do this or not? It was just kind of lockstep. Like, yeah, you're going to college um, and you're going to university and you're going to study and you're going to play ball uh, and you're going to do it, you know, the best way that you can. So, um, you know, just kind of this tenacity for learning as well as uh, uh, playing sports was always kind of on my mind.
0: So there's there's something that I heard you uh, talk about listening to your heart, and I definitely want to hear you dive into that a little bit. But before mm-hmm. I go into that, I'm trying to um, the way I see you consume information and hold on to information. I was always curious if you had a photographic memory. Do you have a photographic memory?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, that's funny that you say that. You know, because I would see, it, and it's not a photographic memory in the sense that it's exactly the way that it it's shown in IRL. But there's, I correlate those to symbols or colors. Like I can remember a room by where the different colors are, right? So I can start to associate where certain things are in a in a space through the colors or the vibration or the actual symbols that I would correlate to that space. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So that that really. Um... Was intriguing to me when I when I heard some of the things I was um, researching before this conversation, and and I heard Mm -hmm. you, you know, share about listening to your heart, you know, inhaling Mm -hmm. and exhaling, and depending on how that makes you feel, um, then you would uh, go with that information that you just received from that. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, like I said, you know, before. it was really difficult for me to articulate what I was feeling. And like that also like helped had me feeling like I was a little bit out of place or I was a step, you know, too soon, you know, or I didn't believe in kind of like the superpowers that I think we all have as individuals. It's just about tapping into them. Right. And how do we actually um, resonate with those superpowers in a way where we feel comfortable with expressing them. And so when I was around like 16, 17 years old, um, I found that when I was in these meditations states, what I would do is first, I would actually breathe in words. Like, it, I know it sounds a little bit, um, that word in, like so. If it was discernment that I needed, if it was understanding, if it was clarity, whatever that word was, I would breathe it in, and I would actually feel that word dissolve throughout my body on a cellular level. I would just try to dissolve that word throughout my body, and then after that, what I would do is I would ask a question. Right? It didn't matter if it was big or small. I would ask a question about guidance, like, "What should I do? You know, should I, you know, go to uh, on this trip? Should I call?" this person back whatever it was i would ask a question and i would listen to my heart and if my heart was beating fast then i knew it was something that i shouldn't approach right then and there not saying that i should never approach it but just right then and there i shouldn't approach it but if i asked that same question and my heart was beating slowly then ultimately I knew it was something that I could approach. It was something that I could pursue or explore. And then I could just check in, you know, as I'm going through that to see if it still resonates and kind of using that litmus, my heart on a physiological basis, helped me to bring some of these more complex or complicated um, ideas down into saying, does this resonate for me? And so it almost served as my compass. Now, what I found kind of moving forward is that everybody has, I think, this tool. And sometimes it's different parts of our bodies that react when we're asking these questions. So sometimes it might be a shrugness in the, in the shoulders or a tightness in the, in the solar plexus or, you know, a tightness in the chest. We all have to kind of listen to our bodies to see what that indicator is. But for me, it was my heart. And I, um, you know, use that as as a as a uh, as, as a compass or as a guide uh, when making decisions.
0: I love that. Do you do
1: that for food? I, I've done it for food for sure. <laughs> I've done it for food. Okay. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's no, it's interesting that you say that because when after I, you know, got out of the league, um, I became like almost a pescatarian, a vegetarian for a while, for about five years, then turned to a pescatarian. But when I was traveling, um i would make decisions on should i eat certain things right and i would listen to my heart and if it didn't resonate i wouldn't actually eat those things so if i was in like a landlocked country like bolivia or something not saying that i loved my experiences in bolivia but it just didn't resonate me with me to eat the meat or things of that nature so that kind of started the transition of me becoming a a vegetarian and a Mm pescatarian i
0: love that i love that okay so football football ucla correct Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What was that it. experience like? What was that experience like for you?
1: You know what? It was phenomenal. It was one of the, you know, it was one of the best times of my life, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I had to make a decision uh, between UCLA and Stanford. Um, And at that time, UCLA had, for me, a better overall program, right? They had the uh, academic side, but they also, you know, had a really good football team at that time. And there was an opportunity for me to play as a freshman. Um, And, you know, I loved the campus. It was close to my home city, Long Beach, California. And I think also the kind of last, the straw that made the decision was that my sister was there. Right. Um, And so uh, she was a a Bruin and um, it was local. So my parents and family could get up to the games. Uh, Plus, I could, you know, pursue all of my academic endeavors uh, at UCLA as well. So it was just kind of the perfect fit. And, um, you know, looking back at it, I just had a reunion. One of my uh, really close friends, Deshaun Foster, just got uh, um, inducted into the Hall of Fame. And it was like a reunion. And um, I just appreciated making that decision of going to UCLA from all the friendships and the networking and uh, the intellect I was able to, um, to, to, to glean from, from that time period for sure.
0: So uh, I'm curious how, how close were the playbooks from college to NFL and were there any things that bleeded over like easily to, to learn and was football intellectually stimulating for you?
1: Mhm mhm. Um that's a great question. Um and it's a yes and no on the intellectually stimulating thing but one of the advantages that I had uh was that I came from a high school uh Long Beach Poly which is really rich in producing NFL athletes. And so when I was a sophomore, junior and senior in high school during the summers a lot of NFL athletes would actually come back and we would work under the tutelage of a guy by the name of Don Norford. And so, we were, with these guys coming back, I was really exposed to the work ethic and different drills and skills that you would need even on an NFL uh, field. And so through that, when I got to to college, I thought that it was going to be this huge leap. Um, you know, and I was like, man, I was a little timid. Like, am I going to be able to fit in? You know, what is my learning curve? Am I going to be able to jump in now or do I have to red shirt? So those were questions before I got to training camp. But when I got into training camp, it just seemed like the game was a lot slower because I had exposure to so many great athletes during summers, um, at, at Long Beach Poly. And so I appreciated that aspect of it. And so that transition from college um, to the pros was also, you know, a little bit easier because when I got there, I was just like, you know what? Um, one of my mantras is that I'm going to work harder than everybody else. Now, if somebody just flat out beats me um, and they're better than me, then I'll give them that. Right. Kudos to them. But you're not going to outwork me um and you're not going to be smarter than me when it comes to being prepared to play the game and so i learned that from the nfl guys in high school so each of those transitions i thought would be you know greater but ultimately when i got into the mix i just kind of melted in there and i just gave my best and and my best was good enough
0: Mm -hmm. Mm, so so what you're saying is on a slant route i
1: can take you I don't think so. I, you know, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't want to give that to you, but you know, you might have, you know, some, some quick feet, you know, I, I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I really, you know, I, and for me, a lot of it was in the preparation, right? So I would watch film on my opponents. Um, and I think, you know, I still utilize that skill uh, in life, but um, I think a lot of the times when you play Athletics ninety percent of it is preparation ninety percent of it is mental. The more you know before you go into the game, the less time you have to use to react right mm-hmm. and so I would really focus on what are the cues uh what are the things that I can pick up uh the similarities the patterns that I can pick up in preparation uh in order to not have to react so 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 much on the field mm-hmm
0: one of the things as I remember reading in Kobe's book was uh, he took classes outside of basketball to get better with his footwork. And when you see, you know, how he navigates, um, of course, rest in peace. When you see how he navigates uh, to create a shot for himself, the footwork was, you know, the best of the best, right? So what did you do uh, physically outside of football? You know, things that you didn't mention yet to prepare you for different, you know, things on foot, you know, in football.
1: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, starting off my first sport, uh, was gymnastics. So from six to 13, I did gymnastics. And so that really helped me with peripheral vision, you know, doing backflips and handstands. It helped me with body control. Um, it actually, I believe helped me not to get injured, uh, in, in football, um, where, I knew how to roll. I knew how to like, kind of get out of the way. I knew how to uh, create uh, space or, you know, my peripheral or my body control uh, all those things actually helped me to, to become a better football player.
0: I love that. So transitioning from football, um, the value of mentorship. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: I think mentorship is everything. I think we all need to gleam off of somebody who's been there before. Um, and I think this is in every aspect of life. You know, we have to understand that people have knowledge, they have experience um, that we may not have. And so when we're uh, embarking on a journey, we have to listen to the ones that have come before. Um, and that doesn't mean that I think mentorship doesn't mean that we have to take everything that a mentor says because we are individuals, but it does give us an opportunity to see if it resonates for us and seeing if it's something that we wanna take forward with us and nine times out of 10, it should be something that we take forward uh, with us. And so, um, you know, when we have our mentors and I've had plenty of mentors during my life in so many different areas and so many different facets, it's like a doors, I look at mentors as keys, right? Um, And with every mentor, you get new keys to open up new doors. Uh, of understanding um, and relationships and wisdom uh, that you might not need right then and there, but at some point in your life, you have those tools in your shed that you can utilize in order to make better decisions. So uh, I think mentorship is one of the best things that we have. Um, And do we always take advantage of them? No, but I think, you know, if we really want to excel in life, we definitely should find mentors that we, that we trust and, and believe in.
0: I love that. I remember you saying that there was a point in your NFL career where um when you were transitioning there was a particular mentor that you mentioned uh, during that time for you to make the transition. You can either, you know, get this money, right, and not be passionate mm-hmm. or start moving towards, you know, the things that you're passionate about and mm-hmm. whether it's money involved or not, it's still something that is going to um, have you feeling extremely fulfilled? So, so what was going on there with you during that time?
1: Yeah, so you know, um, and I'm gonna be I'm gonna be brutally blunt. Um, uh, you know, I got drafted by the Green Bay Packers, and um, I loved it. Um, I did really well. My first year, I was Defensive Rookie of the Year. I was Pepsi, Pepsi Rookie of the uh, Week numerous times, and I also was a finalist for, for Rookie of the Year in the whole NFL. And um, I think through that process, I loved the game of football, but I also always had other things that I wanted to do. My dad was an entrepreneur. My mom was an entrepreneur uh, in real estate. And I saw them, you know, always kind of take their own um, future into their hands, um, by, you know, basically determining where their income was coming from. And I was always so fascinated by how business worked. And so, uh, even when I first got into the league or even before the league, I wanted to explore what entrepreneurship looked like. And that didn't really sit well in the NFL. You know, they want you to be a hundred percent just focused on being a football player, to be perfectly honest. And I remember when I got traded to the, um, Uh, the Oakland Raiders at the time, you know, one of the GMs came up to me after practice and he was like, Marcus, you can play in this league as long as you want to, you know, but you got to stop doing all those other things off the field. And, you know, Andrew, when I tell you like the passion for the game, like left my body, like right then and there, I mean, I had never felt anything, you know, so visceral in my life. Like it was just like this, this disappointment, but it was also this disconnect that happened all at the same time. And I really kind of just checked out after that. And then I got traded to uh, Denver uh, and um, serendipitously, like I was actually staying at a hotel there. And this guy by the name of Dirk Van Burkle just came up to me one day and it was like, hey, you want to have dinner with me and my buddies? And I was like, sure. Um, And he started talking to me and I found out that, you know, they were pilots, right? They had and not just commercial pilots, but they were cargo pilots. So they would, you know, take foods and goods and services all over the world. They would take parts for airplanes around the world. And they were working on a project in one of the private hangars there where they were transitioning or converting a large passenger Uh, aircraft into a cargo aircraft. So they were stripping out all of the seats, you know, in the fuselage and creating, you know, a cargo uh, bay. And then they were, you know, retrofitting a door and then changing the propellers and doing stress tests on the fuselage. And I was just super fascinated by this this transition of of, of this plane, which was kind of serendipitous to the transition that I wanted in my life. And so this mentor, uh, Dirk, he really kind of took me under his wing and taught me so many things about the aviation world that when it was actually time to sign another contract, you know, I told my agent, you know, I appreciate everything that you've done for me, but I'm moving in a different direction. Um, And I felt comfortable. I didn't have all of the details, but I had a direction. And I think, you know, for anybody listening, you know, if you're doing something that you don't want to do, like it just doesn't resonate with you. Find something else to do and follow that passion, right? Even if you have to experiment with what that passion is, don't sit in something that you don't resonate with. And that was kind of one of the best decisions that I ever made, even though I didn't have all the details. Um, And a lot of people looked at me crazy. How are you going to forego all this money, you know, in order to do something different, but it just felt right. And it felt like something that I could fully express myself in. And so I, I, you know, I I leaned upon my mentor at that time and I made that step.
0: Mm, Love that. Love that. Is this around the same time you considered, Doing the traveling. When did that come into play?
1: Yeah, it came around. You know, the last time. I mean, my first international trip actually came when I was at UCLA. I I was 19 uh, when I got my passport, and my first international travel was to Lagos, Nigeria. And when I tell you, when I got off, at first I was so reluctant to go, you know, because the images that I had of Africa at that time were very uh, Anglo-Saxon, white, patriarchal images of what Africa was, right? You saw the poverty, you saw the flies, you saw the the, the 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 malnutrition, and you saw all of these kind of negative connotations of what Africa was. And so I was very reluctant. Like, I don't know if I was at that time ready to face that realization realization of you know where my roots actually came from but ultimately when i got off the plane and when i tell you i saw the largest sun it was orange i remember it vividly so so vividly i saw the largest sun that i had ever seen in my life and it was just staring at me right and then not only that but the smells were so familiar it just felt like home it felt like a new beginning for me. Um, and what really, really impressed me is that, okay, the infrastructure of Nigeria, Lagos at that time, looked like literally nobody had touched it in like 40 years. Like, I mean, the roads were were depleted, you know, the buildings were falling down, the traffic was atrocious, the, you know, pollution. But in all of that chaos, I look over to the side and I see two gentlemen like holding hands smiling, laughing, having the best time ever. I mean, and they're dressed to the nines, right? Collared shirt, slacks, dress shoes, and I'm like, that really messed my mind up because I thought happiness was about the things that we can accumulate, right? The mm-hmm. new Jordans, you know, the jackets, the shoes, the cars, all of the cell phones, all of these things. I thought that was what we we should strive for, but true happiness comes from within and that really sets, it really germinated that seed for my travels and, and really kind of put in that um, that desire to see the world in a different way, because I, at that moment, I knew the world was big, but I also knew the world was small because we're all humans going through a similar narrative, no matter where we are on, on Earth. So that sparked it but when i had the freedom when i actually became free from football um that's when you know i really had the opportunity to take off where i went over to europe i was there for like i was supposed to be there for like 3 weeks i ended up being there for 10 months um and i really started to dive into history and where not only my culture came from but where from other you know cultures actually came from which helped me reflect on 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 who I was as a person uh, and learn about other people and where they came from.
0: I love that. So essentially 81 countries later, uh, you're saying that we're all the same.
1: Pretty much. And it's so it's so funny that you say that, man. It doesn't matter if you're in a village in the DR Congo or, you know, you're in Long Beach, California. You have it and you see the same characters. You know, people go through the same things. They want the same things. They have the same desires. And then you see the same personalities and characteristics from people. They might speak a different language. They might have different cultures or, or rituals. But, you know, at the core of humanity, we are all the same. You know we all go through the same the same things, no matter where we are on this planet.
0: That's awesome. that's awesome. So there's a a term that I saw you mention recently, natural capitalism. And I'm just mm-hmm. trying to understand uh, what it is, you know help you know educate us a little bit on that and what did you glean from from it?
1: Mm-hmm. So natural capitalism, um, there was a gentleman by the name of Paul Hawkin who was another mentor of mine. And he was really like the first individual that, you know, when I was playing for, for Denver, like I would go to practice, I'd go to the hangar and I'd watch Charlie Rose. And there was this gentleman by the name of Amory Levin who talked about the oil endgame um, and how do we wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. And Paul Hawken was kind of one of his constituents and, and cohorts and partners that he worked with, and he actually wrote this book called natural capitalism and basically natural capitalism gives you the basis and the framework to create new futures that are regenerative where if we're building societies and we're building city planning and we're building products and services, how do we close the loop to where those could be sustainable and regenerative? And this was the first book that actually I could, I could grasp to see the solutions that I've always been envisioning, right? How do we, since I was little, like how do we actually create and and almost manufacture a solution for all these things? And that was always a disconnect for me. It's like, with all these resources in the world, why is there war? Why is there not peace? Why are, you know, is there poverty? Why are we over-consuming energy? Why are we doing all these things? And natural capitalism was a framework that helped to um, look at, at different materials, uh, different structures, different systems, uh, and how we could actually create more regenerative and sustainable futures.
0: I appreciate that. So, so in the countries that you visited, when it comes to paying homage, giving flowers, right, mm-hmm. showing reverence, um, in your experiences, what did that look like from different countries as you were traveling?
1: Um, fr- from them or from from me uh, relating to them.
0: Uh, well, from from their practices of showing homage to one another and what you observed mm-hmm. as you were traveling. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I, I totally get that, and that's such an important uh, question and provocation. Um, what I learned, like a lot of the countries and, and villages and townships that I would visit. Uh, There was a lot of indigenous wisdom embedded in them. I mean, we're talking about thousands of years of resiliency, generation after generation of um, dealing with some of the most um, harsh conditions, right, but still finding a way to be resilient and make it through uh, those transitions, and the way that a lot of those communities and the patterns that I really gleaned from is that they really leaned on kinship, right? Um, and the way that that happened was first that the women were the social backbone of the community. And, you know, even like, say, when I was in Uganda and I was in this village um, outside, um, I would see that women even during the times that they would go get the water right and sometimes the water was like four kilometers away uh, and they would walk and during this time they would talk about all of the things that were happening in the village and so during this time of communing and, and communicating with one another they understood, you know who was going to school you know, what domestic issues were going on in somebody's home, you know, what work opportunities were available, what new technologies, you know, were available within the community. And so they, they that was the backbone of the community were the women and how they communed with one another. And then when I actually looked at, most, you know, more deeply, some of the patterns that I recognized were the relationships that they had. So what was most important was is not the individual, but the community, the we. So they really looked at it from the I to the we. What is the relationship that they have with themselves? What is the relationship that they have with the community? And then also importantly, what relationship do they have with the planet? And I think those considerations where they saw and they made decisions, not just individually of the individual ego, they saw the aspect of connecting to the generations and the ancestors that had come before and the ancestors that are to come in the future. And when I you know, when I when I understood this concept and I started to recognize these patterns, these communities could could survive anything and they could create some of the most innovative things that could last for centuries because they had these considerations at the beginning and the conceptual aspects of whatever they built, right? And so that really started to see where it went from the I human to the we human. And that aspect really changed my perspective on how and what my relationships were to myself, to my community and to the planet.
0: Hmm. I believe that it should be easy for us to do that digitally, but it seems like, I don't know if it's a lack of you know, individuals um, not criti- critically thinking about things, and the fact that we have more tools, you know, to make it easier for us to communicate and understand each other. Like, why why does it seem it's tougher now with more tools than it was back then? Can you touch on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So there's this concept um, that me and one of my – uh, Ex business partners actually uh, always would go back to, and it's called the ecological triptych. And basically, the ecological triptych looked at uh, the seas, and the first C was looking at consciousness and how um, how consumerism and how um, ultimately this aspect of who we were, this colonization kind of uh, framework, right? Where we as humans are deemed in the narratives that we tell ourselves is to just take, right? We have access to everything. If we want fossil fuels, we can just dig them up and take them, right? If we want to create, um, you know, some type of labor, we can find somebody to, to take and to do that labor for us. And so this colonization aspect was really putting the the human at the apex of the global system right where we could just extract and take as much as we wanted. And then the other aspect is capitalism, right? And so even if we're thinking about the digital space, capitalism is almost like this reinforcement learning of AI systems, right? So what what is it about money that helps us to reinforce what we're already doing? Like, so the more that we extract, the more money we get, the more rewards, and the more ego we feed our ego, the more dopamine, and now we feel like we're actually doing the thing that we are supposed to do. These are the narratives that we believe in. But what's coming up now is the aspect of climate change, right? And that is the result from the colonization and the capitalism, the reinforcement that is creating a direct effect to the system in which we are living in. And when you look at technology, our earth is the most complex technology that we No to man. You know, we build these sophisticated AI systems, but 4.5 billion years of iteration has created the conditions for humans to be here. And our narratives have created a large disconnect between what we feel uh, we are deserving of, which is colonization, where we feel like we deserve everything that we want to put our minds to, the capitalism that actually reinforces you know, those decisions, and then the climate change, which we're going to be one of the hugest mirrors to humanity um, that we know of. So until we understand those first two of the colonization and creating a different relationship with the materials and our, our planet, and coming up with different structures around financing and capitalism, where there's something that, everything is calculated and uh, there's a holistic calculation of what we're actually using. And then that at last, Pete, what is our relationship to the earth? We're going to be, you know, um, kind of having that disconnect uh, from our planet. So uh, I hope I answered your question in, in that. Well, you're
0: good. You're good, man. I'm just appreciating. Yeah. Cause this conversation, you know, even when I was thinking about some of the questions I was going to ask, it was designed for us to really think about how we do things, how we interact with one another, the tools that we're using to do those things and even the part where it seems like we're less, we're, we're so fragmented, you know, as humans, mm-hmm. even the way we, we operate and deal with each other. Um, and the question I have for you there is how, what can we do to become less fragmented as human beings as we're navigating with mm-hmm. the technology? And then we're going to jump into technology in a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what? I mean, this could be like more of an ethereal answer to this because i don't think there's just like a structure that you know ultimately um can make these transitions for us but what i've done in my in my own life is to remember my child remember what my purpose is for coming to this planet why am i here right what is my purpose why did you know the ethereal Aspects and the elements come together for me to actually have this experience. And I think as children, we know all of those things. And through society, those things are slowly but surely teased and needed out of us, right? And we kind of get into this group think and we get into this uh, uh, kind of uh, disconnect of who we want to be as individuals in order to suffice a narrative that somebody else has told us. And I think as we become adults, we become responsibility. We become responsible for our own actions and where we want to be in life. And so taking away from this group think, You know, finding who our child is, finding what our purpose is and really making the courage and the bravery to figure out what resonates with us, I think can help us start to understand where we need to go as a collective and really getting out of this aspect of the I human we don't stand alone. Every person is identified by a relationship, whether it's our family, whether it's our friends, whether it's people that we don't know, we are all defined by something else. And so through that aspect, understanding that we are a collective, even by Default, then we would make better decisions, you know, for our own uh, selves that would ultimately change the framework and how we envision the world and how we approach the world uh, and what things that we're bringing into the world, the products and the services, services we create, the biases, the iner- inherent biases that we have when we're creating systems. Um, and so I think those transitions of self identification. Understanding our purpose of why we're here and then ultimately understanding our position in the larger ecosystem of society and, and, and community uh, can help us to make those transitions.
0: I love that. I love that. So before we get into the technology stuff, I definitely want to ask G-Media, you have any thoughts before we jump into some some technology conversations, G-Media?
2: No, just listening in, man. It's uh, smooth silk for my ears. It's like just you talking about everything from um the beginnings to like you know breathing in the words i'm like damn like i was like trying that out you know i'm like just have my mic you i'm like damn me think about the words like really because we hear about the power of words and you know we spell right we we're, we're literally magicians life is alchemy it's all like transmutating energy so to hear you talking about some next level things that's uh very inspirational uh and um it, it, you're, you're going on such deep levels like even on this recent topic like you said on, on structure it's, it's going to be more complicated and, and and just crazy man it's insane hearing you talk about uh, all, all these things from fitness to gymnastics to becoming more agile and then the passion aspect it's, it's really just like life is as simple or as complicated as we make it so you're touching on so many uh, deep topics on like some next level esoteric like wisdom to simple things people can do like even what you touched based on the uh, community aspect i'm like damn like yeah when they go out getting the water just that trek that travel alone is like sustaining and molding and shifting the community and strengthening it and here we are twiddling our thumbs on like a tablet and we can't even go outside you know like it's crazy it's crazy to just think of um sometimes I say that and I'll just finish off with this is like, you know, the ancient knowledge or like the stuff in the past, right. in in many ways we're not advanced we're we're worse off in many ways. So kudos to you for just like, you're, you're just a warrior. You're seeking wisdom. You're clearly just like looking for the net, just seeking knowledge ultimately. And that's so powerful.
1: You know, and I love you said you said that about language uh, and narratives. And I'm working on a project um, called the Living Dictionary, where it's a semantic shift and translation tool, um, and it really tries to identify which words hold divergent meanings, right? And then identify these siloed lexicons. And and I say that is because as humans, we automatically think that every word that we use people have the same interpretation of that word, right? But one word could have so many different meanings depending on our references, depending on our past, depending on how we are currently feeling in that that time or even the geographical location in which we're living in. And so this living dictionary really is to start to tease about, you know, what language is being utilized as a tool for our understanding and really seeing where those things break down. So I could be here in California, you know, thinking that one word means something and someone in Kansas could hear that same exact word and have a totally different interpretation of what that word means. And so their narrative around that is going to be totally different. But when we talk, you know, we feel like we're speaking the same language but our references are really not communicating the way that uh, we think that they are, which causes a lot of communication breakdowns. And so, you know, that, that aspect that you brought up, language is so important. And I call it the coding material for our reality. You know, and I really think that language is something that we really need to be particular in, about how we use it, the narratives that we create in order to create these more uh, uh, futures, p- specifically in this new digital technological space. Um, because if you look at around, like it's just like cancel culture everywhere. It's like if you say one word or you say one thing that doesn't resonate with what I believe, then I just want to cancel you. Right. It's no more like critical thinking or communication on thought to seeing, like, where is that divergence happening and how do we come to uh, understanding? We might not agree on that understanding, but at least we can have that conversation without just immediately canceling somebody.
0: Okay, so fair. Uh, Go ahead, Jimmy.
2: I'll go after you. I was just saying, uh, yeah, I mean, people are reacting, not responding. Mm-hmm. and um, they need to learn to agree to disagree and not fight for who's right. Two people can be right at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. Indeed. And that goes for what the future looks like, right? We're, we're, we're almost on a flat surface and people are creating behind the scenes. They're creating new systems. They're creating new structures. They're creating new currencies. They're creating new ways to, 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 to connect. And, you know, sometimes those things aren't going to mesh, but we have to have some type of tool uh, to understand one another uh, in those transition periods. And I think it's so important that we utilize language in in a way that's productive instead of counterproductive.
0: Yeah. So I want to divide the room. Do you agree with pineapple on pizza? Why or why not? (laughs) (laughs) Let's divide the room real quick. (laughs) <laughs> Let's loosen the tension a little bit. Why or why not? Make a make a case for it, or or not. What, what do you what do you think?
1: Um, pineapple on pizza. Like, I mean, you know, if you're feeling. If you're feeling tropic, you know, if you're feeling like, you know, you're on vacation, why not go for the pineapples, man? You know, if you're feeling, you know, like you need a little bit of more pizzazz on your pizza, go for it. Pineapples on pizza is something that definitely can uh, get you to where you need to go if that's what you're looking for.
0: That's such a diplomatic answer. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that answer i hate it It's okay we'll we'll move on we'll move on so uh technology shaping us and we're shaping technology and how how did you um apply that to your life personally
1: Mm -hmm. um so kind of during my travels i started to um really see the patterns of how people use technology. And when sometimes we get this misnomer of where we think technology is always like this digital type of technology, but technology can be fire, right? Technology or shoes or shirts. Um, technology is something that um, is utilized as a, as an art or a craft. And that's where it comes from. You know, the Greek word technet, which means to, you know, the ability to create uh, or to create art or a craft. And so, you know, technology has always been with humanity. Um, And so through this aspect of technology, um, we can't isolate or break down where technology is not affecting us. Right. And so sometimes we have these biases where we're creating this thing that's abstract, that's outside of us. But. Quantum physics, you know, states, gentlemen like Niels Bohr, Einstein, you know, Niels Bohr came up with this uh, experiment called the split, uh, the slit experiment, where he saw that an electron could be a wave as well as a particle. But until he became the observer, right, and part of the apparatus, then he couldn't determine whether there's a wave or a particle, right? And so to say that is, there is no boundaries between technology and humans, Right. As we are creating technology, technology is also creating us the way we think, you know, the way we memorize, you know, even our Anatomy, right, and uh, how we utilize our phones. There's been a lot of more cases of of, of respiratory uh, problems from people slouching over, right, looking at their phones or their computers, right. There's been uh, new kind of like thumbs or spurs that are starting to, you know, come up in people's necks from you know utilizing their technology. Um, and even if you look at it further, like I'm sure everyone has a phone that's here. Um, you know, if you really think about it, you can almost um, analogize a, a phone to a child, right? When it, it's 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 crying or something, it's notifications, right? When you need to feed it, you got to find a plug to plug it in. If you break it, you feel like you got to take it to the ER, you know? And then ultimately, if you lose it, you feel like your life is over, right? So the way that we relate to technology has a lot of um, anthropomorphic type of um, of 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 of, um, of patterns where we start to look at technology as humans, and it's now more and more being integrated into our lives. I mean, even if you look at the internet, if you were to ask someone under, you know, fourteen, life without internet, they wouldn't be able to imagine the world without internet. Right. And ultimately, if you're older than that, then you can understand the transition from the analog to the technical aspects. But it's happened in such a brief Relevant brief matter of time of of humanity that these things are starting to become almost like the internet is the fourth utility, right? How we connect to people. If the you if the internet goes off, some people don't know what to do with themselves, right? Or if you're trying to find a destination, you couldn't tell me, you know, all the streets that you took in order to get to your destination. Google or Waze does that for you, right? So the way that we relate to technology as we are creating that technology, that technology is also informing how we live um, on a massive basis.
0: Hmm. So if someone was considering um, inserting like a chip into uh, Mm -hmm. their their hand or, you know, their ear or something like that, you know, to, you know, either um, learn more about uh, technology or giving their... Body to certain, you know, experiments in that regard, if if you want to call it that, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. Uh, What would you share with those individuals who would be considering something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a personal choice, right? And you know, um, in 2017, I made the personal choice to put an RFID chip in, you know, my hand, you know, in order to really as a provocation, um, you know, to breaking down those boundaries, but you know, ultimately. You know, we all have cell phones, right, that have about 15 trackers on them, right, and that can do multiple different things. Um, And so when I actually put the chip in my hand, I wanted to break down the boundaries between organic and non-organic materials, right? What could I do? Uh, and how would I live if my body was the key to access? And so you know through this chip that I put in my hand, I could get in my offices, I could buy certain things I could get on the bus. I was living in Scandinavia at the time in in Norway, and this was more proliferated than say in the west uh, West west. And so um, this gave me a new understanding of how my body related to other things in life. Um, and I used it as a kind of a provocation to myself and saying, you know what? I am the technology, right? How I feel and what I do and my steps and my mental and all of these things that I bring into the world, those are a piece of technology that I can utilize to move things. Now, my hand is just a, you know, and the chip is just kind of a conduit for that experience. But ultimately, how I utilize that technology is really up to me. And so dissolving that kind of external aspect of what technology means to us and embedding it into my you know into my body i dissolve those boundaries and so what i would say if you are going to explore do your research right see what you know you would utilize it for see if it resonates with you if it doesn't resonate with you by all means, don't do it. You know, if it does resonate with you and you want to experiment with it, then do it. You could always take it out later. You know, so um, it, it's a personal choice. But for me, it was something that I wanted to um, push the boundaries of really starting to understand uh, the, bound, the, the, the boundlessness and the, and the dissolving of the boundaries between technology and humans.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Man. I, I appreciate that. We're coming down to the final minutes, but I want to include a lot of things that you're working on for sure. As you mentioned that you're working on, you know, projects, uh, of course, uh, World Education uh, Foundation, and you have the website Ancestral uh, Cyborg. So, so definitely tap in and share all the things that you're working on. And we'll see if we can uh, throw in a question or two from uh, the
1: listening audience. Definitely. Um, so in 2009, I created this uh, organization called the World Education Foundation um, where we did different developmental jobs around the world uh, from the DR Congo, which is our first project where we help rural farmers transport this bark called quinine or kinkina into the main city of Bukavu to be processed into malaria tablets. Uh, we've worked on biodiesel projects. Um, I've worked with refugees uh, in Tendu which is the uh, Western Sahara or uh, the southern Algerian part of, uh, of Western Sahara, uh, help them to develop and start to communicate with um, what is important for them and create new products and, and, and innovations that would help them gain incomes and, and a sense of of, of pride, um, and, and innovation. Um, I've worked in Syrian refugee camps, uh, where, you know, during the wars, uh, they created new communities. Uh, in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Um, I've worked in Myanmar in education systems. And so that really started to hold firm for me about the importance of learning different cultures, uh, learning different geographical locations and contexts and how people learn. Um, And right now I'm translating that into helping companies actually transition from Web 2 into Web 3, that there is an opportunity to gleam on where we've been uh, where we are now, and where we and what futures we could actually provide and, and bring into the future. And so, with that, um, uh, me and a, a couple other founders are creating a holding company that uh, focuses on different verticals around education, sports and entertainment, fashion architecture, AR, VR, you know, the metaverse, and then also cities and municipalities um, and, and even governments. Um, so we're in the midst of gathering our case studies and creating our roadmaps for each of these verticals, where ultimately we'll, you know, have different services around education data, uh, intellectual property, business intelligence, as well as consulting services. Um, and then, you know, kind of as as, as it goes, I'm also a consultant. Uh, for Fortune 100 companies, helping them transition um, into the innovation space um, and creating new uh, stories and narratives, values, rituals, um, and identifying what technologies that can help them create a legacy. So uh, when I ask these the, the, these, the question that I ask these companies um, before I even approach any of the other stuff is what type of ancestor do you want to be? And this really integrates the legacy that they want to build, but it also kind of makes it very palpable of the decisions that they make on a day-to-day basis will determine the legacy that they leave at this company. And so companies aren't just these abstract signs of, you know, the brand, they're individuals. Right. And so as an individuals works within these companies, um, it's the legacy that I think is important for them to leave. Um, so those are a, a few of the things that uh, I'm working on right now. And I'm super excited uh, to see these things continue to unfold.
0: I love that. And if you have any questions for Marcus, as we begin wrapping up, please feel free to you know, come up, share a comment, you know, based on a conversation we had today. Um, and I don't see any questions coming in right now. I definitely want to Tap into your daily rituals if you have any. If you want to touch on that as we begin wrapping up.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so ever since Clubhouse started, one of my rituals is being in the back cave. Um, but, but besides that, you know, I really like to to meditate um, and really check in with myself um, and seeing what's important. Uh, Seeing what I need to leave behind, but also what I need to take with me. Um, I love to check in on my values and my value statements, and then also create if anything needs to change, you know, what is that hypothesis to change that? How do I actually create that change that I want in my life? um and then i identify the different tools that i have available to me um and then ultimately i try to ground that in certain um uh, rituals or habits that i can change in my own life to create that 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 change uh so meditation is really huge Uh, for me. Um, But then also preparation, right? If I'm working on a project, I like to prepare, I like to study, I like to research uh, what I'm doing. So a lot of my time during the day is about researching. And then there's a time for action, right? What are the steps that I need to take? Who do I need to call? Who do I need to align myself with? Um, And what do I need to do uh, in an actionable sense in order to uh, realize uh, those manifestations? Um, So it's really about checking in, Uh, manifesting, uh, taking stock uh, and inventory about what I have access to, and then action, right? How do I turn all of those things into action? So my days are different depending on what needs to get done, but those are the kind of core bases and the core framework that I utilize on on a day-to-day basis.
0: I appreciate that, man. I appreciate you. Um, I was, you know, thinking about, you know, how how this conversation was going to go today. I was like, okay, so you know, I, I've done my homework and I wanted to make sure I highlighted all the amazing things that you have going on. You know, I mean, I think that was, you know, very, very important. Even when you look at ancestral dot com. So definitely check that out. Uh, see what's happening on on the website. And yeah, it's just brilliant. We've had conversations before, you know, on, on Clubhouse, you know, different moments. You mentioned the bad cave, which is where we hang out whenever we get together in there. And uh, it's been it's been really fun. It's been really fun uh, just uh, learning from you and, you know, cracking jokes and just, you know, your history and and everything that you've done, you know, thus far is speaks all inspiration, you know, across the board. So I thank you for even taking the time to come here and have the conversation. Um, and I appreciate you for everything that you are doing, everything that you're working on.
1: And I appreciate you the same, Andrew. Like, you know, when we first met, I just knew there was something special about you and the way that you hold space for others um, as well as um, be diplomatic in, in different ways of helping individuals realize themselves as well as any situations that come up. It's a gift and you have that. And I appreciate you uh, and all the things that you bring, not only to my life, but everybody else's life that you come in contact with. So I appreciate you as well.
0: Blessings to you. Uh, so, so we're gonna wrap up. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for listening to this conversation. Definitely make sure you check out Marcus and everything that he has going on. Follow him. Uh, follow G Media and everything that G Media has going on for sure. And uh, we really did appreciate uh, this conversation. It's a lot to think about. There was a lot of wisdom shared today, and I hope you're able to uh, receive uh, some wisdom today. So, thank you so much, G Media. Feel free to close us out and have a
1: great day, everybody.